Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yavamot, daf Lamed Zion, page 37. So our Gemara gets into an interesting discussion here, one that I've always found fascinating, which is this concept of the nine-month and seven-month babies. So if you recall, our Mishnah discussed what happens in a case where it's a woman gives birth seven months after she's married to the Yavam, but it's not clear, right, uh, that, um, you know, that was this baby conceived with the second husband or was this a baby that's actually a nine-month baby that was conceived with the deceased brother? Um, and if it was actually, so there's actually a suffix here. And so the Mishnah actually says you bring this asham taloi um, and because you're just not sure really did they do a chait or did they not do a chait? Chait. Rava has a very interesting question about this. Amr le Rava le Rav Nachman. So Rava says to Rav Nachman, Lem halach acha rov nashim, v'rov nashim letisha yaldan. So he says, why don't we just assume the rove, right, the majority, most women are pregnant for nine months, and let them, let's just assume that this was a nine-month baby, therefore the assumption would mean that this was actually a baby who's the offspring of the deceased brother, and they should just bring a chatas, like just treat it as a certain case. Why are we even getting into, maybe there's a chance that this was a seven-month baby. Rav Nachman replies, He says, well, actually, the woman in our family, in my family, they always give birth after seven months. So, you know, therefore, we couldn't do the suffix thing. So Rav replies back, So he says, wait, but the women in your house are not the majority of the women in the world. And most women really, this is just an issue for uh, very, very few women. So Rav Nachman actually gets into a little bit more detail here about what the suffix is, and it's very interesting. This is what I'm trying to say. Most women are pregnant for nine months. And there's a minority who their pregnancy is only for seven months. Everybody who is pregnant for nine, who gives birth at nine months, they recognize that they are pregnant uh, a third after a third of her days. In other words, by the third month, they know that they're pregnant. But here in this case, this case of this Yavam and Yavama, it's clear that she must have not recognized that she was pregnant in her third month. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not just about the nine month and seven month when you're born, but there's something also about the pregnancy, uh, about the pregnancy itself. And so what they're saying is, is that obviously if this was a typical nine month baby, right? she would have known she was pregnant already um, by the third month. That's how you're counting well that it's a nine-month baby because you say like, oh, this is the third month. I don't know what he's referring to. I assume it refers to skipping a period and that they count three and so therefore they know that they were they were pregnant for three months. Um, so that's where she's the majority is compromised. In other words, that's where we think that's where the uncertainty is because if this woman, in this case it has to be this woman did not have that recognition of pregnancy early on. It's not that a woman is pregnant and then she sort of waits to see like, oh, when is the baby born? Is it going to be at seven months or nine months? And that's how I know if I'm a seven month or nine month person. He's saying this goes all the way back. And there's something with the nine month babies that they were able to, they knew when they were pregnant. And by the third month, they knew that they were pregnant. And that's why it's still considered a suffix. And then the Gemara goes on to ask, So it says, if it's true that every woman who gives birth after nine months, 
knows by a third of her pregnancy that she is pregnant. So then it says, okay, so then if she doesn't know that she's pregnant by a third, and then somehow she has this baby, we have to just assume it's a seven-month baby because you're saying part of a nine-month pregnancy is that you understand you are pregnant in your third month during that nine-month pregnancy. Ella am I, right? So rather, right, what do we have to say Rav Nachman was saying? Rova Yoletit Latisha, right? The majority of women who give birth after nine months, Ubarani Karlashishara. So it's the they know that they're pregnant by the third month. Vahai Mitzalohu Karlashishama Itre Le Ruba. But here in this case, um that it was recognized, right? She didn't recognize that she was pregnant from after a third. Right, and so therefore we can't say that she's really like the majority of women. So uh, the Gemara is making an interesting amendment because it's a great question on Rav Nachman's statement. Um, what they're basically saying is, is that yeah, it's the majority of women are pregnant for nine months. That of those women who are nine month women, the majority of them know they're pregnant at the third month and can recognize that this is three months of pregnancy. The question here is, is that you have a woman who didn't have that three month recognition. Right, and so therefore we can't assume that she is in the majority of all women, and therefore we have this question of the suffix of the seven month, and that's why the Mishnah says she brings this asham talui, and not bringing uh, the chatat. I, I've never seen a good explanation for how this sort of seven month thing gets crept in. There's actually some, uh, you know, literature, secular literature. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to Yavamot. Uh, page 42, because there's a much lengthier discussion there. Um, but, you know, I think we always think of it as sort of like a non-scientific fact, but Rav Nachman in a way makes it scientific. Like, it's not just about like, oh, I had a baby. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I was really pregnant for nine months, so it must be this is a seven-month baby. Rav Nachman makes this even earlier, like that there's a piece of this that by three months, right, if you know you were pregnant for three months, then you know you're having a nine-month baby. So there's something a little bit more scientific going on here than I think is normally um, discussed when we have, you know, when we see the seven-month thing, everyone's like, oh, this is like weird Gemara science. I, I guess I'm just trying to defend it a little bit. Not that I think it's true, but more that um, it, it, from Rav Nachman's description, it's a little bit more scientific, even though he's from a seven-month household. I think the scientific piece of it is kind of interesting because, you know, one might one might be tempted to suggest that um, all the seventh month babies were really nine month babies, you know, with um, prior to, right? Um, that the that their origins were that the woman got pregnant when she was not expected to. So, oh look, it's seven months later. It's a seven month baby, as opposed to, um, you know, the shotgun wedding type of thing. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm just saying that the science of it um, is puzzling. And it's kind of easy to, or at least it's puzzling to me. Unless, you know, maybe that will be the next discovery of, you know, seven-month seven month babies being viable, eight months not. I, I've actually heard of this. In fact, when I guess somebody was trying to figure this out, that in terms of it's a particular stage of lung development or something like that, you didn't obviously you know much more about this than I do, in terms of uh, where... When it is that the why the eighth month would be particularly dangerous 
where the seventh month, even though it's more premature for the child, there's an, an easier, at least for our in our day and age, an easier way of incubating. On the other hand, they didn't have that incubation, incubation option. And I haven't seen any discussion of like, oh, those seven-month babies are you know, much, much smaller on average than the nine-month babies. So this is my um, open question as to what's going on with this science. Um, I want to jump down. I'm now on, I'm a bet. And we're talking here, we're, we're back to the mamzer discussion, right? Just a refresher. Mamzerim are, it's anybody who is born of an illicit sexual relationship, the arayot. Um, it is not the term that is commonly used to, to translate it, namely bastard, because the, I don't know, the English secular meaning of the term bastard means a child born out of wedlock. It doesn't, and, and wedlock isn't the issue here. Meaning if the, if a single woman and a, man who is available to her, she is av- whom, to whom she is available, meaning it's not an issue of a Kohen uh, and, a, and a convert, let's say, right? Um, if, if there's no issue, then we might say, like, we don't approve, the Gemara is not going to approve of the lack of marriage between them, but the fact that there's a lack of marriage between them does not render the child anything other than simply a child, right? Meaning there's no status change for the child. Um, there might be Yerusha issues in terms of inheritance, but not in terms of, uh, you know, who the child can then go and marry and so on. Um, so here's what happens, right? Yet um, it's a continuation of a previous discussion, pre- previous discussion of a breakup, but the part I want to th- speak about is really kind of its own more narrow topic. Amar Be'elazar ben Yaakov, lo yisa adam isha b'medina zo, you can't, he says, don't, don't marry a wife in one country and then go to the other country and marry another wife there. I feel like there are many, I don't know, police TV drama type shows that exactly this, right? It, certainly, you know, like there's a, there's a wife in uh, New York and there's a wife in California and the husband, lo and behold, has a great deal of business travel that he must always do and neither knows about the other and, you know, and then that's the saga that, that makes the drama of a, of a TV show. He shouldn't do that. Meaning the concern here is not that it's not nice or ethical to the women. That's not the discussion. The concern is that both of his wives will have children. And let's say one will be a girl and one will be a boy. And then they will grow up. And then they who have no knowledge that they are somehow connected, namely the same father, Shami is Davgu, they will marry each other and Vinimsa et Noseetahotel. And then you end up with a situation where the where the siblings got married, right? That would and then their children will be Mamzerim. The modern equivalent of this is actually, you know, the question of there's a big question on sperm donors, um, which is a modern issue of fertility, where the question of, you know, if you if a if a woman, you know, a couple who comes to use a sperm donor, right, for whatever reason, anybody who who has a fertility issue is using a male fertility issue is using a sperm donor. The concern then is, meaning you know who the mother is, but is the mother then going to, what if that sperm donor donated to somebody else, right? And now those two children are going to grow up and having no connection to each other, they might not realize that they are both the children of sperm donors, and in fact, the same one, and then their children would be mamzerim. In fact, they might be mamzerim with nobody even knowing, which is, a, you know, an interesting wrinkle when it comes to mamzerut, but that's what people try to avoid. Um, 
it's easy enough if everybody knows that they're sperm babies, right? But the problem is that too many people are actually inclined to lie about that, meaning there's no reason that a reg, uh, I don't say regular, a nuclear family that has a father, mother, and some number of children, right? Very often, no, the, that family does not want to indicate that there was any help, fertility, you know, artificial reproduction help um, in in conceiving the children, certainly not to the extent that they say the father's not the father. There's a very important court case about this in Israel in the late 90s where the father was a Kohen and they were, it was a Haredi couple. I know this is such completely tangent, but it's very, very interesting. Um, and the the they wanted to do um, gender selection, right? Sexual, sexual selection from, from the embryos because they were using a sperm donor and the, if it was a boy, the boy would not be a Kohen, and that would like give away the farm, right? Everybody would have to know then that the child who is not a Kohen is also, he's also not the father. And what a Shanda that would be. Um, and it was, a, it was a big court case. And I think it was one on appeal, meaning because gender, gender selection is not considered ethical to say that we're going to choose only the girls or only the boys, usually only the boys, right? But in this case, they definitely wanted a girl. And I believe, I believe it was one on appeal. Um, because of that's how important it is to be able to have children and also to be able to retain your privacy. In any case, here when we're talking about a family, you know, a man who has children in multiple places where those same people will not have any way of knowing that they are in fact connected, that they are in fact related. So don't do that, man, says Rebelezer Ben Yaakov. Like, that's the situation. Okay. And then the Gemara says, but really, is that really prohibited? Ini v'harav so there's this story, and, and I'm inclined to raise my eyebrows a little bit at Rav, that this is a story that he came to Dardashir, and he made this like announcement, you know, proclamation, who's going to be my wife for the day? Meaning this idea that they could just marry for the day. Of course, and meaning the implication is to avoid promiscuity. I'm not sure why that's not called promiscuity, but okay, fine. So he's married to another woman, meaning a second wife, in the time that he is in this other location, and then wouldn't that be exactly this concern? Wouldn't that be exactly, you know, the potential for a child there who won't know that there's a child back home and then they could grow up and get married? Rav Nachman and the same thing happened with Rav Nachman, who says he came to a place called Shach Natsiv and he made the same kind of public announcement. And if the sages are marrying second wives as they go to sojourn in different places, then doesn't it seem that there's no prohibition? Meaning, why do you have to worry if you're going to have a wife over there and a wife over there? Maybe there's no concern that those children have the potential to get married and have children who would be, you know, from a sibling relationship, which would be a rayot and make them a mazerim. So the Gemara says, no, those two rabbeim, meaning Rav Nachman and Rav, doing this, and we could talk for a long time about what it means that they're really doing this, but fine. The Gemara says, Shani, it's a different, that's a different case. They are not the rule here. Shani Rabbanan de Pekiyash Maihu. The sages are different because people actually know their name. And so then everybody's going to know, oh, you're the child of Rav Nachman. Oh, you're the child of Rav. And then they're going to say, oh, you're the, the child of Rav. I'm also the child of Rav. They'll have that conversation and they're not at risk of not knowing that they share parentage. Vaha'amar Rava. So then, okay, I don't want to keep going here. Let me just see.
Okay, the Gemara then gets a little bit, um, I'll, again, it's a little bit of a strange Gemara and some certain strange presumptions given our um, general knowledge of science and the female anatomy, so on today. So what happens is, and I'm not going to read it all inside, but they would, you know, make this proclamation, and then there's a concern, what would happen if, by virtue of the excitement of getting married to Rav, or Rav Nachman, as the case may be, or anybody else who was doing this, right, that they might, the women the, might actually end up um, in Nida, because there would be like a, a rush of of excitement that would lead to menstruation that would then require Shivanakiyam, right, they would have to, to wait the week, that's not useful if you're only going to be a wife for a day. So the Gemara says, no, no, no. What would they do? They would send messengers seven days ahead of when they were coming. So then the women would know. So what happens? The women who would agree to get married will ha- would automatically then have to count the time as if maybe they did in fact have menstruation by virtue of being excited to be married to to this man. And then, you know, then then they'd be they'd I guess go to the mikvah before he would show up. Um the the whole of this, you know, is again a little bit of a challenge to wrap your minds around in terms of like what's really going on here. But the concern is, you know, the Gemara says, well maybe we're just talking about Yihud with with this wife for the day and not really be a not really to have sexual intercourse. So then it would be okay to get married, even if she's impure, but not to have a full on sex. And the answer is, well, mm, the Gemara says, it's a, it's a little bit of a crass expression, but the Gemara says, or Mar here says, Mar here says one who has bread in his basket is is not you can't compare to one who does not have bread in his basket meaning knowing that the woman is there and available to to him you know um the claim here is that having the wife for the day available to him is enough for him to not be um to not be overcome by the need to sleep with her that he actually can then control himself better um as opposed to um yeah, like it just it, the the implication is that that's all he needs. He doesn't really need to sleep with her. He just needs to know that he could, and therefore the wife for the day doesn't actually have to entail this proclamation in advance, seven days, and sitting um, shivanikiyim the seven clean days, and um, and so on. Um, it's it's a whole as I say very difficult. Um, it's a difficult time. So. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to say, well, you know, you shouldn't get married if your whole intent is to eventually divorce, because that seems like just a, like an, un, whatever, like that's, it's, it's, a, it's the next case, but it's the, this example of, um, you know, you're going to end up doing evil, um, cause you're undermining the whole security of being with the, like the fact that the woman is going to end up divorced, you're undermining that same stability that marriage is supposed to bring about. I thought that was kind of an interesting um, ending, and again, it feels like it's just an added statement because it happens to be by Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov, as the other statements were. So it's not really in, thematically, I guess thematically it's connected, but it's not really part of the same conversation. And it feels like such a a much more normal, a healthy recommendation, namely, you know, don't get married if you're planning on getting divorced. I think everybody can agree to that.
Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank <laughs> you.